following program could be somewhat bad news. By a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright. I have reached, I have reached these lands, but newly from the ultimate dim from a wild, weird climb that lieth sublime out of space, out of time, boundless veils, and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titan woods, with forms that no man can discover, for the dews that drip all over, mountains toppling evermore, the seas without a shore, seas that restlessly aspire, surging out of skies of fire. Lakes that endlessly outspread their lone waters, alone and dead. They're still waters, still and chilly, but the snows of the lolling lily. By the lakes that thus outspread their lone waters, alone and dead. They're sad waters, sad and chilly, but the snows of the lolling lily. By the mountains, near the river, murmuring slowly, murmuring ever. By the gray woods, by the swamp, where the toad and the nymph encamp. By the dismal times and pools where dwell the ghouls. By each spot, the most unholy, in each nook, and most melancholy, where the traveler meets aghast, cheated memories of the past. Shrouded forms that start and sigh as they pass. The wandered by, white-robed forms of friends long given in agony to the earth and heaven. For the heart whose woes are legion, tis a peaceful, soothing region. For the spirit that walks in shadow, tis, oh, tis an Eldorado. But the traveler, traveling through it, may not, dare not openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye unclosed. So wills its king, who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid. And thus the sad soul that here passes beholds it, but through darkened glasses, by a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only. Where an Eidolon named Light, on a black throne, reigns upright, night. I have wandered home, but newly, from this ultimate dim thule. Yes, an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright. Shrouded forms that start and sigh as they pass the wandered by, white-robed forms of friends long given in agony to the earth and heaven. For the heart whose woes are region, it is a peaceful, soothing region. For the spirit that walks in shadow, tis, ah, tis an Eldorado. But the traveler, traveling through it, may not, dare not openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye, unclosed, so wills its king who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid. 
and thus the sad soul that here passes beholds it, but through darkened glasses by a root obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only. I'll give you a brass figure with a very large bronze shield if you can tell me who wrote that. That is pretty wild stuff, isn't it? And incidentally, what is he talking about? <laughs> Are you curious what he's writing about? Sleep. Dreamland. Okay. And, uh, listen to this. Tis a peaceful, soothing region for the spirit that walks in the shadows. Yes, for the heart whose woes are legion, tis a peaceful, soothing region. You know, for a guy that's got trouble, sleep is kind of groovy, you know? For the spirit that walks in shadow, ah, uh, an El Dorado. But the traveler traveling through it may not, dare not openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye, unclosed. So wills its king, who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid. And thus the sad soul that here passes beholds it but through darkened glasses by a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only. And named Night on a Black Throne sits up. <laughs> Who wrote that? I'll give you one clue. It was not Edgar Guest. And it was uh, not Joan Baez. <laughs> Who wrote that? Now, you, you know, huh? That's pretty... Well, uh, just use your head. Now, he, some of the key words that he uses in here are words that appear in almost all of his work. Key words. All right, what's one of those key words? Uh, I'm, I'm talking like a real... That's right. Absolutely right. You're, you're correct. And uh, you spotted a couple of the key words. For example, here's one of those key words right here. In each nook and most melancholy. There the traveler meets aghast sheeted memories of the past. All right, there's one of his key words, melancholy. He uses melancholy a lot in his work. Who is that? That was one of his favorite words. Melancholy. And uh, there's another word here that, that is one of his key words with, that he uses quite uh, quite often. Uh, by a root obscure and lonely. Now that, that phrase is a typical opening phrase of his poetry, and he uses that same me here in, in his most famous poem, By a Root obscure and lonely, right? <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, okay. All right, you want to, uh, now that, that's a poem that you, you rarely hear, and, and the reason I'm doing this tonight is uh, a couple of nights ago we talked about the fact that poetry turns off a lot of kids who have never been exposed to really, I suppose, poetry uh, that is more relevant to all of us. You know, Lady of the Lake is <laughs> it's fine, but it doesn't mean much. 
uh, to a walking around person in plane. But we've all slept. We've all had dreams. And this is a poem about dreamland sleep by Edgar Allan Poe. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I just can't imagine a school teacher standing up in front of a class singing by a route obscure and lonely. Now, uh, do you want to hear another one? Another, this is, incidentally, another thing about this poem, before I go any further, this particular poem. Um, in the 19th century, and up through the early part of the 20th century, there was a thing called the recitation. Now, the recitation is a form of theater which has disappeared largely from uh, from the theater. It's a, it's a, it's a form of theater where a person on a stage well, professionally, recites a poem. But they don't really recite it. They, they dramatize it. And it's often done in the, in the real, in the really professional sense. It was done with costuming. It was done with staging. And so an actor could make his entire career based on going around the country and playing in different halls before various audiences. He would play, uh, let's say, uh, a good example of that, he would do... Uh, Robert Service, the shooting of Dan McGrew, for example. He would do two or three major Robert Service poems, and it would be like a night in the Arctic. And they would have costuming, and they would have scenery. They'd have, they'd have the you'd look, or the curtain would go up, and there you'd be, right there in uh, in uh, in the bar. And uh, Dan McGrew, you could just see him coming in through the door. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it was a pretty wild evening. Now that particular poem. Sometimes called Sleep, other times called Dreamland by Poe, was a famous recitation that was done by two or three major Shakespearean actors of the late 19th century, and they did it with fantastic effects, sound effects. They had they had wind and howling noises, and they had uh, uh, lights that, that uh, uh, darkening lights on the stage and the shifting shadows and movements you'd see. And you hear this voice, and it would come on. You'd see this, this, uh, this sound would rise from, from off stage, and a voice would begin, a deep voice. You'd hear it coming. The curtain would slowly go up by a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only. Where an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright. And at that point, believe it or not, they would even, they would even, in some cases, in a real production of this, they would blow through the audience icy, cold, clammy gusts of wind. How do you like that, man? I mean, they didn't just, uh, they didn't just, because you know the theater of the 19th century, in case you're not particularly familiar with it, was a much more uh, dynamically produced theater than ours now. And this is W.O.R. New York, an RKO general type station. One production in New York that had a fantastic uh, situation that developed in the last act. You know, they used to do a lot of melodramas. And, uh, and if you, you know, if you think... As we mostly do, I mean, it's it's common for most of us to believe that everything that we live with, we live among, 
is an improvement over what people used to have. This is a common belief. You know, we say, well, well, uh, we must have better writers today. After all, we're more advanced. Uh, we must have better weather today, or, or not as good weather. Or anyway, there's a feeling that's always endemic with us that somehow we are more advanced, uh, that we have improved things. Now, this is a belief that we all have, and perhaps it's largely an American belief, maybe it's a Western belief, but this is a belief that people do have. On the other hand, we're torn with a curious nostalgia for something which is called euphemistically the good old days, which really never existed, but we imply in our mind when we say that that there were days when things were better. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. If days were better, obviously it was people that made them better. Why then do we think that we have improved? You see, it's a contradiction. And uh, so there's a lot of contradictions in this thing. But do you know that in the 19th century, this may interest you, Jerry, that they had a production, one famous production that was done in the late 1880s here on Broadway that is a historical, but now that was almost 100 years ago. Uh, and the stage at that time, they didn't have, they had very primitive uh, electrical things that we, by, by today's standards, electricity was just beginning to be a, a, a fact, a positive fact in the world, just beginning. And it was a very rare thing for people in actual homes to have it, but it was available commercially in certain areas. Well, there was a theater in New York that is, uh, no longer exists, but it was down on 14th Street that was famous for its unbelievably modern productions uh, because it used the technicality, the technique available at the time far beyond anybody who'd ever seen. And in fact, more than anything we've ever done today. Now, they had they had electrical uh, prisms and lenses and one thing or another that they designed that produced fantastic illusions. Our stage experience today is largely very plebeian. Uh, compared to what the average theatergoer of the 1880s and 90s would actually see on the stage of his time. <laughs> He'd go to the stage, and no wonder they went to the theater, because they were fantastic things. For example, one of the most famous productions of that period, and in that theater, was a play that involved, in the end, it involved a, a, uh, a tremendous cataclysm. Uh, an enormous disaster occurs. And the disaster involved a flood. You ready for that? It was a flood. Now, the flood was the result of a dam breaking. Well, and when that scene happened uh, on the stage, people literally would, would flee from the theater screaming. They would flee literally screaming. And it is a fact, uh, and these were intelligent movies, the theater goes, you're not bumpkins or rubes that have come to town. These are people, uh, elegant New York uh, people of society and whatever it was at the time. They go to the theater. Well, when this thing happened, when the, when the, when the flood would occur on stage, people would jump up and run out. Help, help, the dam is breaking. It's getting us. <laughs> Fantastic. And you know what they did? The lights would, uh, at the moment that this guy would come out, uh, you know, the scene is going on, and suddenly this man bursts into the, into the, into the room, and he says, the dam has burst! Oh, run for your lives! Oh! Instantly, there was a darkness. They, they had, by the way, one of the things they had mastered was the incredible shock change of scene. 
Now, in our theater, that's quite slow, and there's a lot of things that caused it. Uh, unions, uh, costs, and many other things. But it takes a lot of people to do what they did. They could change the scenery in like eight and a half milliseconds. There's blah, blah, blah. The people out, bam, boom, bow. The curtain is up, and the lights go off and on, and it all happens in a twinkling of an eye, and the next thing you know, they are seeing this vast scene. And they are looking at a dam which is facing them. And this dam suddenly crumbles with a gigantic roar. And tons of water come pouring down. It just and, 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 and you could see great houses crashing down. The people jumped up and ran out. It's fantastic. Well, that, uh, that scene was done night after night. And how they did it, of course, was a great theatrical secret at the time. And it was extremely effective. You haven't seen anything like that. Never, never, never seen anything like that in the theater. But there are accounts of this thing that are, that are unbelievable. They had one illusion. There was another one, too. There was a play that was set in hell. And uh, it, uh, the, one of the major scenes was, was hell. Oh, it was this fantastic uh, roaring inferno up on the stage. And uh, rising bodies in lava. <laughs> that was a, it, was a, it was an actual, uh, I suppose you might say, reproduction of Dante. It was Dante's Inferno. In fact, it was a, a dramatic pr uh, production of Dante's Inferno. Uh, anybody who knows much about the theater, the history of the theater, knows that back in the 19th century there was a great production called Dante's Inferno. And uh, one of the major productions of this particular play, which was an adaptation of Dante, was the realization on stage of hell, of the of the of the the core of hell where the total sinners went. I mean, where you know it was it was this was it. And when they did that, they did more than just have it on stage. The entire theater changed because this was the end of the of the production. It was the last scene in hell, and you were in hell. I mean, you really were in hell because they would change the entire atmosphere in the theater, and th this dry. Uh, Searing heat would sweep over the audience. I mean, they really did it, man. You just feel your skin tightening, and and you feel this searing blast of of acrid smoke and flame go rolling out over the audience. And it only happened for a few split seconds, not enough that people would get sick and, and uh, die and everything else. The audience from having you know really literally go to hell. But what happened? It was all over in a few seconds. Just, <laughs> And the curtain would come down, and you had a glimpse of hell. That was it. Just a glimpse. And the people would sit stunned. The, 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 the lights would come on, and it was as if they had a glimpse on the stage of an actual nether world that existed. And uh, this was one of the great mysteries of the period. Uh, there were a lot of conjectures in the dramatic pages of how this fantastic illusion was created, how they had done this thing. And uh, the, the artists who were involved, there were several major artists who actually produced this thing, would, would, never would give the, the secrets of how they actually did it. <laughs> what, what kind of prisms and uh, what kind of uh, mirrors and lights and all the various things they used to produce hell. And it must have been something else. Uh, because, <laughs> because, you see, we can't produce anything like that. No wonder the movies... Are, are more effective to most people because uh, with 
I imagine a lot of things, rising costs and stuff, we just simply can't produce that kind of effect any longer. There was one effect, uh, another one effect, another famous production was the production of, uh, of Moby Dick uh, that was done in the mid-19th century where they reproduced on stage uh, this roaring, uh, fantastic sea and a wave, uh, great waves and, and tremendous, the boat, the tiny boat, when they, if you know what happens in the end of Moby Dick, is this little boat, these guys go out, and uh, they're, in this, they're in this tiny cockle-shell boat, and all of a sudden, of course, out of the darkness comes this enormous whale. Uh, he just rises up out of the sea, and, and, uh, and, and of course, they plunge the harpoon in him, and naturally, the, the whale destroys the boat. And then he goes and, and destroys the Pequod, and you see Ahab pinioned on the side of his whale. Well, they actually produced that on stage to such a such a startling effect that that, that it's a it's a matter of record that at the time that it actually happened, that uh, many people in the audience literally had heart attacks. I mean, people that were that were uh, otherwise healthy people all of a sudden <laughs> that was the end of the ball game for them. <laughs> that would be a curious way to go, wouldn't it? Your last your last vision is, is, is this giant whale, but uh, yeah, you know, with, with Ahab pinioned up there, my God. Yeah. But uh, this, they they uh, they used to have in those productions, and that was no joke. And now today, of course, they often make uh, they make a big publicity thing that you can't come to this uh, production unless your heart is good and all that. But in those days, it was a fact, and and uh, they had to take precautions. So uh, whenever there was a production that had you know, fantastic uh, dynamics involved in it and, and really spectacular effects. They would always have in the theater uh, a well-trained medical staff, including a doctor on hand, because people did have heart attacks when suddenly the dam broke. Uh, you know, and here they were. They, they, they were in a flood all of a sudden. It really, it really happened to them. Well, people got so addicted to the theater... Uh, in those days, they would go to the theater night after night after night after night uh, because the theater produced such fantasy moments, such fantastic incidents uh, in your life that uh, that the theater was very real. Now, uh, this thing by Poe was done that way. That was done that way. Uh, one of the most famous recitations was the one of Casey at the Bat. But Casey at the Bat was done uh, throughout uh, the, you know, the early days of the century uh, by several performers. Now, they didn't do it the way we would do it. You know, just a guy gets up in and, quote, does a funny reading of Casey at the Bat. They really did it. I mean, uh, they, they produced the entire ball game. And <laughs> you could see the clouds, and you could see the skies, and, the cl- and, 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 and you were involved in the game. And, uh, and when Casey, mighty Casey, struck out, and uh, you could feel the whiff and the fan of that mighty bat as the wind blew out over the audience, and the and the and the sigh of the disappointed citizens of Mudville, uh, you were really in the ball game, and uh, that that was called the recitation. Now, uh, I, you want to you want to hear this is from a, a collection of recitations. Uh, I'll read some of these to you just to show you. You can see the idea. You can you can see what what uh, 
you know, how much production can be done these things. Now, wait, I'll find you one of my favorites. Just just hang in here. Uh, just a minute. I'll, I'll give you one that, that, uh, that was done uh, by many, many people. Uh, and and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of disappeared. I've done it on this show occasionally. Now, just hold on a minute, gang. I'll, I'll whip this up for you. This is an old, old book, as you can see, Jerry. In fact, it's so old, it's, it's, it's yellow. Well, this was one of them. This was one of the famous uh, recitations. I don't have any poetry. No, no, no music for this one. But uh, I'll just give you a, a couple of words of, of it. And it was done on stage and done quite, a, quite an effective production. And it's, uh, it's a, a famous poem. I've done it several times on the show. It's called Evolution. When you were a tadpole and I was a fish, in the Paleozoic tomb, and side by side on the ebbing tide, we sprawled through the ooze and slime, or skittered with many a caudal flip through the depths of the Cambrian fen. That would be beautiful when you, you could see these, 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 these two fish moving through this green sea, just flipping their their, their, their fins occasionally. Depths of the Cambrian fen. My heart was right with the joy of life, for I loved you even then. A great moment, you know. Mindless, we lived, and mindless, we loved. And mindless, at last we died. And deep in a rift of the Caradoc drift, this incidentally is a geologic drift, we slumbered side by side. The world turned on in the lathe of time. The hot lands heaved the main. And of course you can just see the, the land changing again. Till we caught our breath from the womb of death and crept into limelight again. We were amphibians. Skilled and tailed and drab as a dead man's hand. We coiled at last neath the dripping trees or trails with the mud and sand, croaking and blind with our three clawed feet, writing a language dumb with never a spark in the empty dark to hint of a life to come. Yet happy we lived and happy we loved and happy we died once more. Our forms were rolled in the clinging mold of a Neoconian shore, the eons came and the eons fled, and the sleep that wrapped us fast was riven away in a newer day, and the night of death was past. Then, light and swift through the jungle trees, we swung in our airy flights, or breathed in the bombs of the fronded palms in the hush of the moonless nights. And oh, what beautiful years were these when our hearts clung each to each, when Life was filled and our senses thrilled in the first faint dawn of speech. Thus, life by life and love by love, we passed through the cycles strange. And breath by breath and death by death, we followed the chain of change. Till there came a time in the law of life 
when over the nursing sod the shadows broke and the soul awoke. That's a fascinating bit of poetry. And by the way, you know how they produced it? In the end, it shows these people sitting in an elegant restaurant, drinking an elegant French wine, the result of this endless, endless, long, evolving, slow, coiling snake of evolution. And it was done as a one-act play that began with two fish swimming through water. Involved these two amphibians that crawled, dumb and blind through mud. And it involved monkeys swinging through the trees. And the last scene were these two people quietly sitting in, a, in, in an elegant cafe. Results of all those endless years of evolution. And of course, the implication in the last line, which I didn't read to you here, that we are only part of something yet to come. And who knows which way it will go. You see, there's a lot more in theater than whether or not this chick digs you, or whether or not your mother loved you. <laughs> With all due respect to Tennessee Williams.